Mac Power Users, Episode 354, MPU Plus, recorded on December 5th, 2016. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. Hello, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm well. We are coming up on our last MPU Plus show of the year. Last of many things for the year. It's hard to believe another one winding down to a close. Yeah. Yeah. The year went by fast to me. I don't. I, it's like one of the things I do in the day job is I do year in minutes for a bunch of my corporate clients and I'm I'm looking at the calendar every day now saying, when am I going to get all this work done? Oh, can you do one for me? I've never done this before. I'll 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 be your lawyer, Katie Floyd. <laughs> OK, but the uh, but so the, the end of the year is fast approaching. And of course, we've got a lot of great feedback this month we wanted to talk about. But before we get into the feedback, uh, last episode was all about the new MacBook Pros and setting up your new Mac. And during it, we had drama in the show. That is right. Katie Floyd's brand new MacBook is not serving her properly. I think everybody needs to know, Katie, what's going on with your MacBook Pro. Well, and I will tell you, I am recording from that same MacBook Pro this episode. We had a few people say that I had some audio issues that episode. So if those continue, I blame the MacBook Pro. It hates me. Right after we recorded that show, um, all heck broke loose yet again. And I, you know, I was just like, this isn't quite acting right. So I decided to restart machine. And that was a big, big mistake. And it came up and totally crashed. But it appeared that Dropbox was still syncing. So I kept checking Dropbox on my iOS devices and did manage to get the uh, show uploaded to our editor. But that was just really the final straw. And I took your text message came in. You you messaged me when that happened. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to call her right now. I'm a little afraid. Well, and I was just worried because the the way that our show production works uh, for a short period of time after we produce the show, all of the files live on my machine because I'm the one who takes them and separates them and, and does everything and sends them with notes to our editor. And, and then Mark takes them and goes from there and we both have access to them. But for a short period of time, like the entire show lives on my computer. And that was kind of the danger time that we were in. And I was like, oh, boy, did we just lose MPU? All right. So, so you, we didn't as the, you know, the show published, but, uh, so what has happened with Apple since we last spoke, you were going to kind of raise the stakes a little bit. Well, I, I did manage to get the machine up and running. And as we've talked about, this seems to be a sporadic issue. And I, I took your advice. I basically just told them that, you know, look, I have completely lost confidence in this machine. I don't have any of my work-related files on this machine because I've lost confidence in its ability to perform. And I want a new machine. I, I don't trust this one and it's it's time for this to go. And the Apple Care senior advisor finally agreed with me. He agreed that that enough was enough and it was time to get a, a new machine. We'd gone through all the designated troubleshooting steps. Here's the problem. There are no new machines. There get getting this 2016 MacBook Pro is extremely difficult, which is made even harder by the fact that this is a build to order machine. So they gave me a couple of options this weekend. Um, none of which were acceptable to me. One was I could, um, you know, return the machine for a repair, but they cautioned me that because of the holiday season, because of the newness of the machine and because of the capture and the diagnostics that they were doing, my repair turnaround time was going to be about seven business days that the machine would be completely down as opposed to their normal quick turnaround time. And so he just encouraged me, you're still within your return window, return this machine and get a new one. Great. 
He said, so you can return it to an Apple store. Well, David, as you know, I don't live near an Apple store. And um, they they found me a machine. They found me a machine at a, a nearby Apple store that's about 60 miles from me. With my specs, they had one in stock, but it was silver. It was not space gray. And so uh, that Apple store was willing to hold it for me, but I'd have to go drive and, and get it. And it was silver and not space gray. They then found me my machine. They found a couple in another store that was a hundred miles away from me. They had a couple in stock. It was a bigger store. Just listen to it. I know. Um, And, and then, but they wouldn't hold it for me. So this was like Saturday afternoon. I couldn't get there till Sunday. And they're like, well, you can take your chances. Maybe it will be here. Maybe it won't. And I'm like, wait a minute. 200 miles round trip. Yeah. Five hours (laughs) round trip to get a computer that might or might not be there. And, you know, I just finally said them. I said, like, with all due respect, guys, this is ridiculous. And this is not satisfactory. It's it's not happening. And I said, let me tell you what I want to do. I want you to order me a new machine off the online store. I want you to ship it to me. I want you to expedite it because, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but I've waited. I've waited in line. I've done my thing. Um, and then when that machine gets there, I want you to send this one back to me. I, I want you to let me then send this one back to you. I don't think that's unreasonable to ask. So I have been on the phone for hours trying to make this happen because the first three people I worked with told me that that could not happen. I've now been in contact with a third who is requesting authorization for that to happen. And I will know Tuesday whether that's been approved. Okay. Well, at least it's working for the next hour and a half, knock on wood. We we hope, yes. Well, mine is just working fine. No problems. I'm so glad. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, Got some great listener feedback this month, and I'm sure we'll hear the ongoing saga of Katie's Mac over the next few weeks. Uh, Listener questions from John. He says he's looking for Drobo buying advice. I'm looking to migrate my storage from its internal hard drives to a Drobo, and uh, I'm a digital pack rat and a keen amateur photographer. So my photos library alone is over a terabyte. That is impressive. Just that's just I'm putting interjecting here terabyte uh i have plenty more i'd like to store better too um which makes me wonder about his his um icloud storage limits as well that's going to be that could be a problem my main mac getting back to john's uh statement my main mac is a 2013 macbook pro 15 inch retina with 256 gigabyte ssd okay so he's already outgrown his ssd it's powerful enough but what he really needs is storage uh, enough to handle his photos he wants quick, local, and fast storage. And this is a real problem a lot of people face because when you go to buy a new MacBook, you know, 256 is the stock storage space anymore. You're, you're paying extra if you want more than that. And it's very easy for our libraries, our photo libraries, to, to, to exceed that size because even the iPhone camera, I mean, they take big photos now. So he's heard about Drobo's ease of use and um, he wasn't interested in Synology. So he asked for a suggestion. Um, the um, He says there's a Drobo 5C USB-C, which can be adapted to USB 3.0. Oh, no, actually, that's my my recommendation to him. He was asking for suggestions about uh, which Drobo to buy. Yeah, I thought that was from him. OK, we'll talk about it then, Katie. <laughs> I just I just stole your thunder. You did, but that's all right. 
So um, John was looking for buying advice. Uh, he's looking at the Drobos because he wants something easy to use. He wants something direct connected. So I think you're definitely looking in the right right realm. John says he thinks that Synology looks a little complex and fiddly to him. And, and I get that. Um, the Drobo actually just came out with two new models. There is a um, one of the things John's looking at is although he's got an older MacBook Pro, it's a 2013 15 inch Retina. Um, he wants to get something that is future proof. And one of his concerns is that, you know, the, the Drobo 5D that he was looking at is Thunderbolt 1 and how future proof is that. And what I pointed out to John is that Drobo actually has just released two new models. There is a new Drobo 5C, which has a USB-C port. But of course, with the appropriate cable, we know one of the beauties of USB-C is that that can be adapted to USB 3.0 and then plugged directly into his current I believe that 2013 MacBook um, will support USB 3.0. There is also a um, uh, a Drobo 5DT, which will support Thunderbolt 2 and I believe USB 3. Um, so those are, are possible options. I know Thunderbolt 2 is now also on the way out with USB 3, but it's, it's certainly going to be faster than the old Thunderbolt 1, depending on what his 2013 MacBook Pro is going to support. Yeah, the and one of the areas of feedback I was thinking for John is is do you want it mobile or do you want it something that's going to sit on a desk? Because the fact that you're using a MacBook Pro indicates to me you're probably moving around a little bit, and if you want your photos library available, um, th- some of these Drobos are not really made to be portable. They do have a portable one, but I think that's a second kind of issue to consider. If you're looking for one though to um to man, assuming it's something that can stay home. And it's going to be for photos. You definitely want Direct Connect. I don't think you want to put a terabyte sized photos library on a NAS drive. And yeah, it's just not going to give you, even if it works, which I'm not certain it will, the performance is going to be terrible. So I, th- I think you're definitely looking in the right right realm. And, and hopefully one of those new solutions will uh, will work out for you. And uh, be careful. I mean, this is the season to buy these types of things because you regularly see deals and coupons and those types of things. But it's also the season where we can buy a lot of stuff because we think it's on sale. Um, One of the things I was looking at, the question he had about his photos library being a terabyte, uh, I don't think Apple currently supports anything above one terabyte for storage options. Well, don't don't assume he's using Apple Photos, especially if he's a semi-pro photographer. He may not be using Apple Photos. He may be using something in the Adobe suite. I see the word photos in caps and I just assume it's, it's Apple photos. But yeah, if he was in photos, I, there's just, I don't think there's a good solution for that. Apple should have a pricing tier for two terabytes. Um, not everybody's going to need it, but some people do. I, I thought they did have a two terabyte plan. No, they don't. I just looked. I didn't see it here. Yeah, I think, I think they do. Um, they do have a two terabyte tan, uh, plan. It's a nineteen ninety nine a month. The page I was looking at was old. Yeah, mm-hmm. one terabyte is nine ninety nine a month. Two terabytes is nineteen ninety nine a month. So you don't get any price breaks there, but it's an option. Still not shareable with your family members, though. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, oh, well. I'm paying for it four times. <laughs> you know, it's all. There's not a single member of my family that can get by with the free, but there's there's a lot of data we're paying for that we can't use because we can't share. That's my that's my Christmas wish that Apple fixes that. Don't hold your breath. I'm not. Actually, my Christmas wish is that Katie Floyd gets a working MacBook. Mine too. I, I just, this feels so unfair. You know how long I waited for this. 
Have you played that you know who I am card yet? Have you done that? <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask me that. And the answer is no. I have never played that card. I, I just, I don't think that's appropriate. So I haven't done it. Um, I go to Apple stores and I get recognized sometimes. and But I never like play the card. I would hope that they have a little something by my record in Apple that probably says this this lady's crazy. Avoid her at all costs. Yeah. Let's see if there's something by my record, it's a black mark. All right. And what about Nathan? Nathan actually has a question for you. Uh, we go back to your Dropbox saga, where you talk about how you have this terabyte of Dropbox storage, but until Dropbox releases their, what are we calling it? Dropbox Unlimited, Dropbox Unleashed, Dropbox? I, I think it's Infinity. Infinity. There you go. I was going to say something else, but I'm glad you stopped me. Um, we've heard for two episodes now that Max Sparky has talked about the pain of uploading data to Dropbox that is larger than his SSD and his Mac and his need to constantly shuffle stuff onto the SSD, fiddle with selective sync, etc. cetera. Uh, so he has a serious question for you, Sparky. Why not leave the data on your NAS and upload it to Dropbox using the web interface? Have it all go into a parent folder with selective sync on the parent folder turned off on the Mac so that you aren't downloading bits from Dropbox as you upload them. So the only reason I can think of that it wouldn't work is that you're dealing with some large files and maybe the web interface doesn't work that well for large files. But he says he's uploaded one plus gigabyte size disk images that have worked fine via Chrome. Just a thought. Yeah, I think that's a good alternative. I mean, it, it wasn't that big of a pain, but the, the thing that I got hung up on was I had a bunch of movie files. Because, you know, as the kids were growing up, they'd watch these movies over and over again. So I ripped a bunch of them. And those things are huge. But I thought, why not? I've, I'm paying for a terabyte. I might as well fill it up. And uh, so the way I did it at the time was by copying it onto the Max Drive and then, then doing selective sync. But you could do it through the web interface as well. I mean, that's I just at the time it didn't occur to me. So thank you, Nathan, and everybody out there who's getting ready to upload a bunch of data to Dropbox, go on the web first before you start doing the data dance like I did. Bill wrote in about Mountain App. Um, we've talked about this Mountain.app in the past um, for mounting and unmounting volumes. Are you still running it on Sierra with the new changes in volume handling, especially network drives? And uh, Bill had checked the compatibility list and found nothing. Their website looks abandoned, which is never good. Uh, Katie, you looked into this, right? I did look into this. I was a big fan of Mountain App. I think I was the one that first brought it to Mac Power users, and I've corresponded quite a bit with the developers. And I don't know this for certain, but it appears to have been abandoned. Um, no activity on the Twitter account, no activity on the website. I have personally shot off a few emails to them uh, with no response in months. So maybe not months, maybe a month. So I'm a little nervous. It does not work under Sierra. It has not been updated for Sierra because Sierra changed the way that it handles volumes and mounting things. I'm thinking it might be dead and gone. Um, I do have a suggestion, and it's a kind of caveat suggestion. There's a, a tool that I'm using right now called Auto Mounter, and it was recommended to me by a Twitter follower, and I apologize it came to me from a couple of different people, and I don't know who first recommended it, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's available in iTunes, which I thought was interesting because I thought sandboxing would have prohibited this type of things, and it fluctuates wildly in price. I've seen it as high as like $15 and as low as like $6, so keep an eye on it price-wise. So they're doing some experimentation. <laughs> they are. <laughs> how to make money on it. Yeah. And and what auto mount, I think I bought it at $9.99, and now last time I saw it was like at $6.99. 
And what auto mounter does is it will mount. It doesn't do everything that mountain did. And I still preferred mountain, but you know, it's not available. Um, it will mount drives, particularly network attached drives, but it fakes out the operating system because it, it mounts it in a location other than the slash volumes directory. And for the most part, this is okay, but it can cause some unintended consequences. For example, I've used the Mountain app to auto-mount my Synology, and this would also work with a network-attached Drobo as well, um, under Sierra. And it has worked. It's kept the drive mounted, and I haven't had any problems with that. However, I noticed that all of a sudden I almost blew through my one terabyte uh, data cap this month, and um, I found out that the culprit was Backblaze. And Backblaze thought that for whatever reason, when auto, you could see this as a feature or a problem. When auto mounter mounted my NAS in that weird location, Backblaze then saw my NAS as stuff that was on my computer. A different drive. Yeah. Not, not network attached storage, not separate storage, but now storage on my computer. And then started backing all of that stuff up. Well, isn't that kind of a feature? Well, it's kind of a feature, except not everything on my NAS wants to be backed up because I also have time machine backups on my NAS. You know, I don't want to back those up. Yeah, but you could, couldn't you go in backblaze and turn off selectively some of the stuff on this mystery drive? I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that because, because of where it's mounted and, and where you can find it, it didn't seem to be as easy as to just simply deselecting folders and it's because it's a hack and it's not supported. I have no idea whether, whether you could just say, Oh, this is a great workaround to backblaze, not backing up network attached drives, because although it seems to be doing that, you know, backblaze could, could update and fix it. Or the next update of this auto mounter could change where, I mean, it, for all I know, it's mounting things in different locations every time. And so the location may change every time and it may not always be at the same spot. So I, I mentioned it as an option, but I would say do some further investigation. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of happy with having an iMac running 24 seven because I'm able to keep my, my Drobo just attached. It's not network attached storage. I use it just as a plugged in USB three Drobo and backblaze just backs all that up for me. It's not a problem. It just a lot of the the trouble that comes with kind of these Mac mini or home server solutions, I feel like for consumers, it's a lot of time they're more work than they're worth. Well, I it is to some degree, but I will say that Apple also caused this problem with whatever something that they did in Sierra changing the way that things are mounted. Uh, but maybe it made the operating system better. I don't know. I mean, that used to be kind of a sticky point for me where things would not unmount when you'd ask them to. And I, I haven't had that problem since we upgraded. So maybe maybe they made it better. Uh, well, my problem is now I can't get things to mount. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off with the offer code MPU. You probably don't think about it often, but you spend one third of your life on your mattress. So why wouldn't you want a great one? Casper is a company that's focused on sleep. They've created one perfect mattress that it sells directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. 
Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings on directly to you, the customer. It's an award-winning mattress that was developed in-house. It has a sleek design and is delivered in an impossibly small box. We like to joke about it on the podcast, but it really is amazing when you can carry a mattress up your stairs by yourself. But the Casper mattress isn't just a little parlor trick about pulling a mattress out of a box. It's a high-quality mattress designed by their in-house team of engineers that spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It's obsessively engineered with a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create a mattress that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. And I can tell you, we had tried some of these latex foam mattresses before we got the Casper mattress, and they never quite worked for us. Some of them, you felt like a mummy that you would just sink into. That's not the case with the Casper. They really got the balance perfect. Plus, it's breathable and helps you regulate your temperature through the night. Mattresses often cost in excess of $1,500, but the Casper mattress starts at $500 and then goes up from there. For example, a queen-size mattress is only going to cost you $850. That's less than half what we paid for the fancy foam mattress we bought before the Casper that we didn't like. All Casper mattresses are made in America. Getting a new Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They give you free delivery and free returns in the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night home trial. No longer do you have to pick a new mattress by going to a public showroom and laying on it for five minutes with your clothes on while everyone else looks at you like a weirdo. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. In addition to the mattress, Casper now also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. I love my Casper mattress, and I bet you will too. Learn more by going to casper.com slash MPU and using the offer code MPU to get $50 off any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for your support of the Mac Power users. Okay, Ulyssa wrote in. Uh, I like that name, Ulyssa, by the way. Anyway, I was wondering if either of you had any thoughts or suggestions regarding mechanical keyboards that are compatible with the iMac. Over the last couple of years, I found that the wireless Apple keyboard that came with my desktop is uncomfortable and typing on it became an exercise in frustration because my wrist became sore. So she's got a 2015 MacBook Pro that has become the primary machine due to its portability. I'd like to also find a better way of using the iMac, especially as as she's writing papers to conduct research. I found that while not as sleek, the larger clunkier mechanical keyboards for the PCs at her university allow more comfortable typing. So what do you suggest? Um, this is a, uh, it's a little bit of a religious war that Ulyssa has stepped into here. Uh, there are people who love clicky keyboards. It sounds like Ulyssa is one of those. There are people that, that like the more chiclet or the, you know, kind of the more minimal keyboards that Apple seems to be making these days. Um, I don't think there's a wrong position in this, but I think what you want to do is find what works for you. And Ulyssa clearly wants something that's a little more clickier. Uh, so, Katie, what are you using as a uh, keyboard with your Macs these days? Well, I will tell you that um, also what you personally prefer may not be what your hands and wrists prefer. And that is something that can also change over time, you know, as we age. I have, I personally love the clickety clacky keyboards. I mean, I grew up typing on those. I can fly on those keyboards. That's the keyboards that I learned how to type on, you know, those old IBM keyboards. 
Um, I love those keyboards. And the keyboards that I have found that are most similar to that um, is there's a maker of uh, those clicky clacky keyboards called DOS at DOS keyboards. Uh, if you Google them and I'll put a link in the show notes, you can find they, they will even explain to you if there's like cherry switches and there's blue switches and, and all kinds of different switches. Yeah. People, people have fetishized keyboard switches at this point. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> there's quiet ones and there's loud ones and there's ones that are stiffer and ones that are softer. I mean, you can really go nuts on this stuff. And I had a DOS keyboard for a while and then I, I couldn't use it on the podcast because it was too loud and I couldn't type and look things up on the podcast, but I loved the feel of that keyboard. But I will tell you that at the end of the day, my wrist didn't like the feel of that keyboard because I would attack that keyboard. And I, it, because I did that, um, I found that my, my hands were a lot more fatigued at the end of the day. Uh, the keyboard that I have ultimately settled on uh, is the Logitech K780, which is a much more slim, lower profile keyboard. I would call it probably a keyboard that's very similar to your 2015 MacBook Pro keyboard, the older Apple style keyboard. The chiclet style. Yeah, the chiclet style. Um, I like that particular one because it's an extended keyboard and it also has a, uh, a number pad. I also like it because it has a uh, a built-in um, solar strip at the top so I don't ever have to worry about charging it. It's just always charged by the ambient light in my room. I, I will tell you, though, if you don't like the iMac keyboard, particularly if you don't like the Apple keyboard that came with it, you may not like this keyboard either because it is somewhat similar to that. But if you do like the keyboard on your 2015 MacBook Pro, that's probably going to be pretty similar to your iMac keyboard. So... You know, I, I don't know. It, yeah, I think you just got to decide whether you like clicky keyboards or chunky keyboards and which of those keyboards like you better. What about you, David? It was, if I, I like the Apple wireless keyboard. I, I am um, just a real quick history lesson. I, I was really into the, um, the high travel kind of IBM style keyboards. I used to use them. Katie used to get mad at me because I would use them on the show. That wasn't bad. That wasn't good. But uh, eventually I did a, like a review where somebody sent me one of these minimal keyboards, like it was a kind of a chiclet style. And I used it for a month to write the review. And I found that my fingers were not getting as sore as I used to. I mean, I used to use the other keyboard and my fingers would get sore in the afternoon and I'd go run them under hot water to just like, <laughs> I don't know, it would make them feel better so I could go back to typing, which obviously was probably not super healthy. And uh, I found that I didn't have that problem with these more minimal travel keyboards. So I had just the opposite problem as the listener, whereas using going from the kind of the more travel to less travel work for me. And I'm currently a big fan of the Apple uh, magic keyboard. Uh, I know it's expensive and, but I just like the feel of it and uh, it's fine. That's what I use every day. Uh, what I would argue though, is if you are as the listener writes and says, look, having trouble with my hands and my wrist getting sore, those are concerning things when you say that. I mean, to me, that means you've got early onset of maybe some carpal tunnel or some other issues you're getting with your typing. Uh, and this is a problem you need to address directly. There are some excellent ergonomic keyboards available. Uh, Microsoft is one of the bigger makers of these, and there's several on Amazon. I'm just looking right now. They've got the L5V, which is $80, which is very high tech and science looking. And then they've got the kind of the more traditional natural ergonomic keyboard. Um, those change your, they force you to change your hand position. They do have more high travel keys. And I would encourage you to give one of those a try or something like that. And, um, and, and one of the, the, the things that the question implies is um, you're not sure it, what keyboards work with the iMac. Any keyboard will work. It's Bluetooth or USB. You're good. 
The other thing we could do is we could also refer you to the uh, MPU Google Plus community. Um, uh, lots of people post questions there. Lots of people post answers there. So we've just given you a couple of thoughts and suggestions. You'll probably get a dozen more ideas if you post this question in the MPU Google Plus community. So there's a, another avenue to look at. But when it comes to picking a keyboard, it really doesn't matter what I use or Katie use or anybody else in the community uses. You got to find the one that works for you. And the one data point you have at this point is that these low travel keyboards are making your hands sore. So I think you need to go the opposite direction with that and, and take a look at those. Okay, what about Sherry? Sherry wrote in to ask if I regret moving to a 9.7 inch iPad. So Sherry wants to know if I have any regrets about moving to that from my iPad mini as a long, she says, as a long time, a fan and user of the small form factor of the iPad mini, mainly for consumption. I wonder if moving to a larger iPad would increase or change my uses of the device. I'm an army attorney and cannot pick mix PCs and Mac apps, but I'd rather use my Apple devices to supplement my workflows. So I love my iPad mini loved my iPad mini. It's gone now. And my mom still has an iPad mini and I pulled it out the other day to update it and software updates and update all the apps and, you know, backups and do all of those things. And I just held there and kind of lovingly stared at it and thought, I miss you so much. I wish I could use you again. But I will also say at the same time, I probably don't regret moving back to the seven, uh, the 9.7 inch iPad particularly moving back to the 9.7 inch iPad pro. I probably wouldn't have done it for the 9.7 inch iPad air. For me, what has really been the game changer that has made the 9.7 inch iPad pro worth it for me um, is the additional features that come with the pro. I really thought that I'd use the pencil. I'm honestly, I haven't, it ran out of battery a couple of weeks ago and I, I don't know where it is. It's somewhere. Maybe we'll find it later. But um, I really have used the smart keyboard quite a bit, so much that it stays attached to the iPad Pro. And the 9.7 inch, although it is bigger, I'm finding that I can throw it in my purse easily. I can take it to client meetings. I can take it uh, to court. I can take it places and start to get work done on it that I probably couldn't have done. Um, I, I know that I couldn't have done or I couldn't have done comfortably on my mini and I can type up, I certainly don't use it to the extent that David uses his iPad, but I'm using it much more than I ever used the mini. The mini was almost purely a consumption device for me. And I loved the mini as a consumption device. It was great for reading. It was great for browsing, but it was not as good for uh, creating content or for getting work done. And I find that the 9.7 inch pro is vastly superior for getting any kind of, of work done with the iPad. And it is inferior, in my opinion, for the casual content browsing, with the exception of movies. Movies and, and TV content, or video content are better with the bigger screen. Um, but I don't use that very often. But it is the, I would say that the benefits that I get from the using it more often as a creation device with the 9.7 inch screen outweigh the drawbacks that I, I lost from the um, the smaller form factor of the mini. So while I, I miss my mini dearly, and if, if you are really only using it as a consumption device and love that form factor, keep it. But if you think that you might want to dabble with using it a little bit for, for doing more, 
Um, I found that by switching to the 9.7 inch iPad, I use my iPad now, the pro, I use it now for much more. Yeah. I mean, if, if Sherry's an army attorney, that means she's reading a lot of documents. And I, to me, the way the iPad pays for itself every day is document review and annotation. And that's something you can do with a 9.7. I don't think that would really be possible with a mini. It, the screen is just too small. And if that's something, Sherry, you think you might do, then it's probably worth it. Uh, Katie's really uh, clever to say, you know, it, it depends on how you use the device. But I do think you may find new uses for the device if you get to a bigger screen. Katie, are you using your iPad at all for document review at this point? Or do, is, is that even part of your day job? I don't know if you do a lot of that. I do some. I, I'm, I don't do a lot of markup on the iPad like you do. Like I said, I, I got the pencil, but I end up never using it that much. I, I use um, the 9.7 inch a lot now for pulling up documents. I mean, as you know, in my practice, I've adopted a, a holy paper practice. And um, one of the things now that I do with my iPad, because all of my documents are based in, in Dropbox, is I still bring a small file with paper documents to court because our judges still like to be able to be handed documents that are relevant to the matter and then sign a paper order. But instead of bringing an entire paper, you know, file folder that's four or six inches thick to me with court, um, I will bring those one or two uh, paper pleadings that are relevant to what I'm doing. And then I'll bring my iPad with me because my entire file is on my iPad. And if another issue comes up or if a judge wants to know about something that I did not print out and they did not bring with me because it wasn't, you know, pertinent to the specific matter at hand, I, 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 before we go into chambers, I open the document, I open the file, I get, I get it queued up so that I'm already in the client file and I can just, you know, turn on the iPad screen and, and I have the document ready to go. And I've handed opposing counsel, I've handed the, the judge, um, you know, my iPad to go before. And, uh, it's, it's really nice because you can, uh, I had an opposing counsel who was, you know, trying to find their own pleading and explain something to the judge that was their document. And I just pulled it up on my iPad and handed it to him and said this, you know? Yeah, it's nice. It, it is a, um, and it, and you don't feel like a weirdo doing that anymore. I mean, when, when I first started doing that, people were, didn't know how to take it, you know, you know, nerd lawyer. Right. But the, uh, but now I think it's, it's common enough that people are used to it. Uh, I was watching the other day, um, uh, Netflix has all of the Star Trek, the next generation episodes on it. And so I love those. Yeah. And so, so I was making my soup and I said, I'm going to stop and stop thinking about stuff for a minute and just watch something. So I, I turned on a next generation episode and which one uh, Picard, Picard was there at his desk and he had, um, a stack of, I guess they called them pads at the time, you know, <laughs> and I was thinking they got it right. You know, they got, um, they got it right because he, um, you know, the whole idea of a tablet instead of having papers is right. But why would you have six of them? <laughs> you know, why, why wouldn't you have a personal pad and then have just like you do in court, you have different cases and stuff assigned to it. instead they would shuffle around these, you know, stacks of these pads to each other. Well, for TV purposes, that's one way to show that you're working hard, you know? Yeah, I guess. But but it, it's just, you know, it's it's because science fiction so often gets and Star Trek in particular gets future prediction down. But that's the one part of it I never got. It was the one where uh, uh, Riker was playing his trombone. I don't I don't know what the heck was going on. That but, happened to a lot of them. Um, the, uh, he's not a very good trombone player, I must say. Hmm. I think that was a judgmental. Hmm. 
Okay. Moving on. We got some feedback from the subscription show. And uh, Mike had a suggestion that you can use your personal finance software to track your subscriptions. He said, while keeping track of subscriptions on a spreadsheet certainly works, there's an easier way to track your spending if you're using personal finance software such as Quicken. He says, the way that I've done this is by creating a category in Quicken called subscriptions. So all of my subscriptions, such as Dropbox, iCloud, 1Password, etc., are entered into this category. During the year, I can run a report sorted by payee to see exactly how much I'm spending overall on subscriptions and by company. If you don't want to create a separate subscriptions category, some programs, Quicken included, will let you tag subscriptions, or sorry, tag transactions, so you can have a tech spend category and tag all of your subscriptions with a subscriptions tag. That's a good idea. I'm not sure you'd get the granularity of information that you wanted in your spreadsheet, like how to cancel it and when it auto-renews and those types of things, but it, it, it would give you the big picture of at least being able to track where all the money is going. I'm going to publish my uh, spreadsheet. I, I just want to make a clean version and cut a bunch of my data out of it and make a few changes. But uh, I, I promised that on the show. I haven't done it yet, but that's that's high on my OmniFocus list right now. Uh, Phil had another bit of feedback from that subscription show. And Phil works with nonprofits. And he said, I just listened to the show. And for those who work with nonprofits, there's a great website called TechSoup. It's TechSoup.org. And if you go there, you can find really big discounts on the tools that you use. So he gets a Microsoft Office subscription for $2 per month per user. Uh, they got Creative Cloud for $20 per month. And and he went on to show some other examples. Uh, the point being, if you are a nonprofit, go check out TechSoup.org. And I guess what we should have mentioned as well, it's kind of a, a side point to that show, but a, a lot of these companies also have educational discounts. There's a lot of ways um, maybe one of the things you should be looking at when you look at your subscription list is, am I paying too much for this? Is there a way for me to get a discount? I know even some of the people who sponsor our show give discounts for nonprofits and education. So um, definitely look into that. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor for Mac Power users, and that is the Omni Group. Now we are coming down to the end of the year. You probably have a gazillion things to do. This is my most hectic time of the year. And do you know how I keep all of those things straight? For years, I have depended upon OmniFocus. OmniFocus is more than just a task management system. It is my life management system. It's available on the Mac, it's available on iOS, and it's even available on the Apple Watch. OmniFocus allows you to quickly and easily get all of your tasks into their system. It's powerful enough for you to use on its own, and it syncs through the cloud so that you can use it on any of your other devices running OmniFocus. So whether you're iOS only and want to use it simply on your iPhone or your iPad, whether you want to use it on your Apple Watch or whether you want to use it on your Mac, they've got a platform for you when you are ready to seriously get things done. For me, half the battle is capturing all of my information and OmniFocus makes it so easy to capture all of the tasks when I think about it. Because if I don't capture what I'm thinking about, it will likely be gone and I'll never remember it later. One of my favorite ways for capturing tasks is to use my voice. OmniFocus for iOS has the ability to integrate with the built-in reminders app on the operating system. That means that you can set up a dedicated OmniFocus reminders list, or you can integrate with your existing default reminders list so you can capture tasks with Siri. You can also get tasks into OmniFocus 
by sending them through email. A lot of times emails come in with lots of tasks to complete. OmniFocus has this great mail drop feature, which allows you to set up a specific dedicated email address that will sync directly to your OmniFocus inbox, which means if I get an email that has a slew of tasks in it, I can simply forward that email to my special OmniFocus email address. That email will show up in my inbox and I can process it with the rest of my OmniFocus tasks. And finally, OmniFocus has a quick entry shortcut which in my case means I just hit option space, a little window pops up, whatever happens to be on my mind, I type it, it shows up on my OmniFocus inbox for me to process later. I can get whatever is bothering me out of my head, empty OmniFocus, move on with my life, and process my data later. You can find more information about OmniFocus over at theomnigroup.com. They have a free trial that you can go download and try now to see if OmniFocus is right for you. And all of their apps come with a money back guarantee. So go check it out, omnigroup.com. And thanks to Omni for their continued support of Mac Power users. We also had a lot of feedback about our geek gift guide. And David, I got more tweets and more emails from people who said, you don't know how to use the Harmony remote. Yeah, I'm not holding the Harmony remote right. I took a shellacking for that. I, I don't know what to say. I, I got as many emails and tweets as you got. I got more. People love their Harmony remotes. It's like me and my Sonos. And um, and I only got a few emails from people agreeing with me that it didn't work for them. Um, by and large, the vast majority of the emails were saying that they've had it and it's worked flawlessly and they had no problem. Um, I had mine for three days. I got it. I spent about an hour and a half getting it going. And all I can say is you'd push the button and sometimes everything would work and sometimes it wouldn't. And when I was using it with my non-geeky wife, I didn't want it to be, you know, a part-time success or then it would never get used. So, um, so one of the, one of the bits of feedback I got from, uh, I believe it was Colin saying at a repeater, he says he has one of the older Harmony remotes with a hub and has been happy with it, but uh, some of the models don't have the screen. The units with the screen have a big expense for what ends up being a junky experience. Well, that was part of my complaint. I thought I didn't need the screen. But he talked about um, the communication getting hung up and uh, to get a reliable uh, communication, uh, he recommended getting an infrared component that is an IR repeater system. And he linked one at Amazon that we'll put into the show notes. Maybe that's it. I Maybe it was just an IR problem because um, I set it up in sight of the uh, entertainment center, but it wasn't right on top of it. So maybe that was my problem. But boy, I, I just did not have the experience that everybody else is reporting. Did you get one? I have not gotten one yet. Still on my Christmas list. Maybe Santa will bring it to me. And, you know, that could be susceptible to interference. So it's possible if it wasn't right on top of it, you could have had something interfering with it. Maybe your fancy Sonos didn't like it. Who knows? Yeah, it just, I, I get it. I bought, I downloaded the um, the software. I, this wasn't a thing where I, I just didn't spend enough time with it. You know, I updated the software. I went on the forums. And um, I think part of it was the cable box that I have isn't the world's best cable box, but it's the one that they give me. And, and one of the things in the forums, people were having trouble with that particular model and brand of cable box with it. And I think that was definitely one of the elements of it, but the, the overall experience to me wasn't that great. And, um, and I just wasn't sold on it, but you know, I'm sure they'll go on sale at some point. Maybe I'll try again and, um, 
and see what's going on because everybody, almost everybody loves their, 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 um, Harmony remotes. Like I was really surprised at the outpouring of love for this product. Andrew wrote in with a caution about being careful with the laser lights. Remember I talked about that I was going to skip the ladder this year, wasn't going up and down and up and down, and I was going to install laser Christmas lights in my house. Did you do it? I did it. Um, I'm not entirely thrilled with the ones that I got. Uh, Lowe's, uh, which for those who are not here in the U.S., is um, one of these big home improvement store chains. They had like a pre-Black Friday sale on laser lights, and they had kind of a lower-end off model that they put on sale 50% off. So I bought a couple of those, and they're fine. They're like only green, but they don't have any memory. So it's like I've got them I've got them hooked up to a Wemo remote so I can control them with Alexa. Oh, boy. Sorry, people. And I can just say, turn on the Christmas lights, turn off the Christmas lights, and that's great. But apparently whenever they lose power – they cycle between their um, their settings, and they've got like three different settings. So sometimes one of them's flashing, sometimes one of them's steady, sometimes one of them's flashing rapidly. It's just kind of potluck what you get, but it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, Andrew had a problem. He said, "Look, I want to caution to you about these laser lights. Lasers are really terrible for your eyes, so pointing them right at your windows or doors seems to be a questionable idea." And in some case, a neighbor of his shined into the street where cars and pedestrians pass. So shining our eyes. So please be considerate. Yes. And I actually got Andrew's email before I set up my laser lights. So I was particularly careful with how I set up my laser lights. I was very careful that I did not shine them up into the sky so that I was being careful because they can blind pilots and they can create problems that way. So I was I was very careful that I sh- I kept them down and kept them just on the house and on the lawn. And I also got some duct tape because there is not a problem in this world that duct tape cannot solve. And um, t- I, I was walked around and made sure that the laser lights stayed on my property. And there was one area where some of the laser lights were going over onto my neighbor's property and shining over to their house and potentially going into one of their windows. So I actually got some duct tape and put it on the... Um, what would you call it? Like on the lens of the laser light, like mask masking off part of the laser light. Um, so I was shortening the, where the laser could point and uh, t- taped that off so that it wouldn't uh, shine over into my neighbor's property. So I tried to be very, very considerate with my laser lights. Um, I spent a lot of that show talking about headphones and Bluetooth headphones for some reason. And uh, David wrote and said, it was a bit of a shame that the AirPods might be unavailable or at least hard to find this year. And and now as we record this on December 5th, I think it's even more likely that we're not going to see them before Christmas. But he wanted to point out that you can actually get a lot of features of the new AirPods and two existing models of the Beats headphones, the on-ear Beats Solo 3 wireless and the in-ear Power Beats 3 wireless for workout headphones. Both have the W1 wireless chip that does all the smarts of the AirPods. Uh, he's had a pair with the Power Beats for a few weeks. He says pairing was easy and reliable. And the coolest part is sharing the connection over iCloud, which I didn't know you could do, by the way. Uh, I paired once on my phone, but now I can just sit down at my Mac and keep using them by selecting them from the volume icon in my menu bar. So if you've got a jogger or other athlete in your life, you might consider those Power Beats 3 as a nice alternative to the scarce AirPods for about $40 more. That's a um. That's true. I think the over ear ones are nice too because they're more solid and they stay on. The thing I really liked about the AirPods, and I'm I'm gonna wait for them, but the um, just the whole idea that they fit into this dental floss case that you can put in your pocket, 
for the kinds of different things I do, um, they're really super. You know, I do spend a lot of time on phone calls and, you know, even when I take walks. And the fact that I got to use a pair uh, from a friend of mine who's got a sample pair from Apple, um, I was much more impressed with them in person than I had expected to be. Did you see that there was an email supposedly from Tim Cook that said just a few more weeks now? Yeah, but a few more weeks, it's going to be Christmas. Oh, so. I know. So <laughs> I, I don't think they're making Christmas, but I, I you know, that's one of the, I hate reporting on or, or sharing these, you know, customer emails, Apple executive. Although I tell you this weekend, I was so frustrated with my situation more than once. I thought about popping open my email application. Um, but, you know, when Apple doesn't tell us anything and, you know, you get one of these alleged emails from an Apple executive, sometimes you feel like maybe that's all I'm going to get, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and it does seem, we, I don't want to turn this into an Apple news show, but it does seem like lately they're really having trouble hitting dates with their stuff. Um, the AirPods aren't going to be out mo- most likely until 2017. Um, my sister would just bought a uh, Apple Watch Series 2 for my brother-in-law for Christmas. And this is a couple days ago. It was like December 1st and the ship date is like December 22nd. So, you know, the Apple Watch is not that big of a seller. I can't imagine. I mean, it's just odd to me that this late into the game, they're still having trouble meeting, you know, supply. And um, and Katie wants a new MacBook, but it's going to take a month for them to make one for it. I mean, it's just it seems like they're really having trouble lately. I, I don't know the story behind it, but it seems like they're a little slow. Well, and I just saw a, a news story come across my timeline. Again, I know we're not a breaking news uh, news site that said that um, Apple Watch um Shipments were down 70% in Q3. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that they can't get them out. Yeah, I mean, my sister very nearly bought my brother-in-law something else. I think if the the delivery deadline had been another day or two, she would have just said, okay, he's not getting that this year. Um, Just getting back to David's question, one uh, device I don't think I've ever mentioned on the show. When I first went out on my own um, as a lawyer, I, I knew that I'd be spending a lot of time on the phone. I'm I'm working through my um through my iPhone and I I've got ways to spoof that it's coming from my office when I need to. And um but I wanted a good pair. Of, I didn't want to just use an earbud in my ear all day, but I knew I was going to be on the phone a lot, so I asked around and everybody told me that the one to get is a Blue Parrot and it's VXI Blue Parrot and I've had it for over a year now. It's a really nice uh for for using on telephone calls, uh headphone and it's, it's just one ear. It doesn't cover both ears. It charges over micro USB. It's got good range and it sounds great. It's If you spend a lot of time on the phone, that may be worth looking at. But in all honesty, at this point, I'd probably wait until January and just get a pair of Air, AirPods and see how that works first. You want to talk about MacBook Pro feedback? Yeah, we did get some feedback on the uh, the MacBook Pro um, we, I complained quite a bit about the, uh, MacBook pro keyboard, uh, and Vance says he has an easy suggestion to help. Uh, he says, since you have a MacBook air, you'll notice the reduced keyboard travel on the MacBook pro. Vance says it's not a huge difference. I think it is, but Vance says it was bugging him too. And he wondered it might not really be as different as we think. Uh, he says the MacBook Air's keyboard is slightly tilted due to the case design. So if the new keyboard on the MacBook Pro is irritating you, try putting a notepad or something like that under the screen hinge and see if a slight tilt makes it any better. It's weird how little things like this can make a difference. He said he adjusts his and he'll prop up his hands just a little bit for the tilt. 
and it helps him dramatically. Have you uh, come to terms with that keyboard or you, you like it anymore or worse at this point? I, I will tell you that the longer I use it, the less I hate it. But we are nowhere near the like level yet. The um, I had a um, I I wrote about three thousand words the other day on the the MacBook Pro. You know the funny thing is I felt much more comfortable with that keyboard than the MacBook keyboard, which I also used for a long time. I went back when I got back home and got my daughter's MacBook and and compared more. And I think that the uh, the MacBook Pro keyboard is significantly better than the MacBook keyboard. It is not the same as what you had. And it, I understand that there's a lot of people that, that are passionately against it, but uh, I have I like it more now than I did when we recorded that show. So there you go. Uh, now, Les, uh, on the other hand, wasn't interested at all. <laughs> Les canceled his MacBook Pro order. He says, I've canceled my purchase, waited for years now for a new Mac. I don't w- want or need the high-end graphics card at all, but I would like 32 gigabytes of RAM. My issue is value. When you add up a few options, it passes 3,000. And that's a lot of money for a laptop with limited specs. Uh, Razer laptops are loaded to the same price range. However, I'm not a gamer. It's all about relative value. I think there's a lot of people who chose not to buy these. And, um, you know, I don't know. Apple's got better numbers than we do about it. So um, we did get, this is just one representative email. And, you know, I'm sure there's people that that love it and some people that don't. But uh, this is the first time in the years we've been doing the show, we've had a significant number of emails from people saying, I, I read about it and decided I didn't want one after all. I don't think we've ever had that experience before. Yeah. We also got an audio comment from uh, Melanie about her new MacBook Pro. So let's take a listen. Hi, this is Melanie Homer from Jacksonville, Florida. I also got a new 13-inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. This is for a home setup with occasional remote law office work, plus I use my laptop in the courtroom for trials. I'm a paralegal. This is my third MacBook Pro. First was in 20, 2008, then a mid-2012 15-inch Retina with 256-gigabyte solid-state drive. The new 13-inch MacBook Pro has a 1-terabyte solid-state drive, which should give me plenty of storage for on the go in the courtroom without having to pack an extra flash drive for exhibit storage. Our firm does product liability, which is very document intensive. I did all the recommended scrubbing, cleanup, and multiple backups of my old laptop before setting up the new one. For my setup process, I use the Migration Assistant for one main reason. I have a Windows virtual machine with Parallels running Windows 10. I didn't want the hassle of reinstalling Parallels and Windows and the three or four Windows programs I need and digging up the ancient license info for a couple of them. Migration Assistant took about 90 minutes. I had about 220 gigabytes of stuff on the old Mac. And except for one or two instances when the software wanted the license re-entered, thank you 1Password where I saved all of that, I am now good to go. The adapter and dongle I needed uh, for the migration were an Apple Thunderbolt 3 to Thunderbolt 2 adapter and a Thunderbolt cable to connect the two. Each were $29. Ouch. However, the Apple genius told me I could return the cables before January 1st and get a refund. This I did a couple of days after the migration and got a credit of $58. Woohoo! The other necessary adapter was a USB-C uh, digital AV multiport adapter for a second monitor and a powered 
USB hub. I've got an Anchor 10-port power IQ charging hub into which I've got a Brother black and white laser printer, an Epson colored inkjet printer, a ScanSnap S1500M scanner, and a couple of OWC Mercury Elite uh, Pro hard drives. And then the hub is plugged into the multi-port adapter, which is then plugged into the USB-C port in the MacBook Pro. So far, everything is working fine, and I love my new MacBook Pro. So there's a positive spin on it. Melanie loves her new MacBook Pro. And also, she uh, she used migration assistance, but I said nobody should use. And she had a really good reason for using it. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that, Melanie. And I do like how she scripted the woohoo. That, <laughs> that is the best part. One thing that I would point out is that, um, by the way, Melanie, you can find you can you could have reinstalled um, Parallels or VMware, whichever one you're using, just the Parallels or VMware application and then taken your um, your Windows image, which is usually saved in your users folder. Yeah, it's about a 10 gigabyte file, depending on how big. And brought that over. And that's what I do on my uh, my work machine, because I also have a, a Windows install on that particular machine. But hey, if it worked for you, I think that's a great. I, I liked Melanie's comment, number one, because it was a positive spin. So someone's new MacBook Pro is working for them. Um, and she did things differently than, you know, kind of the path that, that we had outlined. And there's a lot of people um, that are liking these devices. I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but... But it's just odd that we have people that really don't like them, which is a kind of new for us. Uh, we had some more uh, general feedback and audio comments as well. You want to hear from Adam? Hey, David and Katie. This is Adam over in Iowa City, Iowa. Wanted to share a anecdote about macOS Sierra's new storage management features. Um, I had a friend that wanted to install a huge game on his Mac took up about, wanted about 60 gigabytes of free storage. So he went to free up some space, deleted uh, a ton of TV show episodes that he had stored, but his Mac would still not recognize that there was in fact enough free space, kept saying it didn't have space. When we went into the storage management area and we saw that there was about 70 gigabytes of purgeable storage and we're thinking well what gives that's actually free space why won't you let us install this and what we wound up figuring out was that we needed to turn off auto time machine backups and when we did that it wiped out the purgeable space purgeable storage and uh, we were able to get things installed but I think that it was, for some reason, saving a snapshot of a backup or something like that and um, wasn't letting us install it. So maybe some little bugs yet to be worked out in some of the new uh, storage management things. Hopefully Apple will get to that. But I wanted to share that with you guys and uh, maybe with other listeners encountering uh, similar things with the purgeable storage. Thanks for your work. Talk to you later. Yeah. And just to be clear, you get to this in the about this Mac tab. If you go into the Apple menu and then they, they updated that window, I believe, two software releases ago where it's much more user friendly. One of the tabs is storage and it shows you a color coded outline of what the storage availability is in your Mac, which is kind of nice. I mean, we've talked about some third-party apps that do the same thing, but but there's always, it's like there's these hash lines where you see purgeable space and you often see this on laptops because 
the way time machine will work is sometimes depending on how it's set it will start making time machine backups on the local drive where it has room until you plug it in somewhere and it can dump that stuff into a disk drive so i suspect if his friend had a external time machine backup and he had plugged in it may have taken a bunch of that purgeable space away as well an alternative to to simply turning it off what I like most about this comment is we all can imagine where Adam is right now. Yeah, I think he's in at sea. Is he on a boat? <laughs> is he on a backhoe? Is he on a motorcycle? I don't know. Could be any of the above. No, you know, I think he's on Mars. He's, he's like the Martian. He's got the little rover and he's just tooling around on the planet. Yeah, it could be it. No, but I thought I thought his comment was important because I think we're still struggling with purgeable space here, and and I'm not quite sure. I think ten the ten point two beta, ten point zero point two beta, or the ten point two beta is out, and hopefully it resolves some of these issues. Hopefully it will be out to the public soon. But uh, I I don't know. I have not been thrilled with Sierra. And I just got to say, I, um, I I gave Jason, you know, Jason Snell does his annual 2016, he did the 2015, he does his annual Apple report card. Um, and I gave him some comments and I'll be real curious to see which of my comments he used because uh, some of my comments were, were pretty critical. <laughs> we'll see. But um, I think Sierra was, was, for me, has not been that stable of a, of a release. And there are no showstoppers. But one of the concerns that I have with this uh, yearly upgrade cycle is that I feel like I now have three months out of the year where my machine is not as stable as it was the three months before. Yeah. Whereas if they did it once every couple of years, you would have more time to put bigger things in and more time to polish it. All right. Let's hear from Luca. Hi, Katie and David. This is Luca from Italy. I just listened to episode 352 with Ian Bird, and I heard you talk about recording Keynote presentations. I wanted to give you a little tip. In Keynote, if you open the Play menu in the menu bar and then click Record Presentation, you can enter a mode which shows you the usual presenter view with addition of recording controls in the bottom left of the screen. If you click Record, it will capture the audio from your default system input as well as your slides advancing. When you're done, you just end the recording, go back to the editing view, and then you can export the video through File, Export, QuickTime, and adjust your settings before saving. Audio and video will be perfectly in sync, and you will be able to skip the step through a screen flow. I hope this is useful to some of your listeners. Keep up the good work. Bye. Yeah, that was a great comment, Luca, because screen flow is another $100 you're adding to it. Um, what you get for that is the uh, additional editing power, you know, the way it works in Keynote, it just, you push the button and you go and you, you advance the slides, you talk, it records. It's great. So long as you get it right in one take, if you want to have a little bit more control, then you need to go with something like ScreenFlow. And I, another downside of ScreenFlow there is that you've got to learn the software, whereas Keynote, you can just kind of talk through the presentation. So if this was something you were doing frequently, if it was something maybe as, as part of teaching where you could just go through and make the slides and go through and record it, uh, that saves you the extra step and the extra application. And we did not mention that. So thank you for sharing that. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by MindNode, delightful mind mapping for your Mac, iPad, and iPhone. I am so pleased to have MindNode as a sponsor of the Mac Power Users. I've been using this application for years, and every day it helps me get my work done. 
We've talked in the past about brainstorming on the Mac Power users, and I have to tell you that my note is the key that really unlocked brainstorming for me personally. Our subconscious minds are always working on those big problems in our lives, and having my note on my iPhone and my iPad and my Mac makes it really easy for me to quickly capture ideas when one comes to me. So every time I work on a large project, whether it be something on the legal side or the Mac Sparky side, I create a MindNode mind map. As I develop the mind map and brainstorm into it, I come up with these various problems, and we're all going to have problems on any big project we work for. MindNode gives me a vehicle to store those things and to store the solutions as they come to me. The application delivers powerful tools with a simple design. It's not easy to do that, but MindNode has nailed it. Using MindNode, I can quickly jot down ideas and thoughts and draw lines as to their relationships. MindNode can automatically arrange them so they look nice and keep them sorted for me. Each mind map you create with MindNode has what they call an infinite canvas, so it will grow as big as your ideas do. There's even a way to cross-connect nodes, so your mind map can get complex as it needs to be using MindNode. And with iCloud Drive, all of your mind maps are on all of your devices. The synchronization is rock solid. I've never had a problem. And I love being able to whip my iPhone out of my pocket and add to one of my nodes anywhere. You can also export your mind maps to open format, text file, and even as an image. Sometimes I'll collaborate with a client on a mind map, and at the end of the meeting, I'll send it to them as a PDF. They love getting that work product, and it allows me to have a universal format that they can see. I really can't emphasize enough that MindNode is a combination of a simple interface with powerful tools. You can use it without a manual. But if you want to learn more, head over to MindNode.com. They've got some great videos there that I made for them. The one I would recommend this week is the brainstorming video because it shows exactly how I do the brainstorming that I talked about at the beginning of this ad spot. Anyway, check out MindNode. It's a great application. And thank you, MindNode, for supporting the Mac Power users. All right. Last uh, listener workflow tip is a great one uh, from Evan, and I'll have much more detail in the show notes, but I'm going to let Evan explain it first. This is something that I really want Evan to come to my house and set up. Do you think he do- he'll do that? Ask him if he does house calls. I will. I will. Hi, Katie and David. Uh, this is Evan from Pennsylvania, and I'm sending this feedback about a way to get your Wemo and the MyQ garage door opener working with HomeKit. Those are two things that aren't normally HomeKit compatible. Just like Hue lights come with, or you can get a bridge to make the lights HomeKit compatible, the same thing happens here, but you set up your own bridge using something called HomeBridge, which you install via terminal on your Mac. You could also install it on something like a Raspberry Pi. It sounds more complicated than it really is. Uh, I've written about it on my website at 40tech.com in a couple of posts. Uh, I can also answer questions on Twitter at 40tech. The best part about this now is with Siri being able to raise my Apple Watch and say, Siri, open the garage door. And within a couple of seconds, the garage door is going up. So hopefully this is helpful to some of your listeners. And thank you for all you do for the Mac community. So Evan wrote a blog post on this with instructions and much more detail. This has been something that I've been generally aware of, but the terminal scares me. I know I have a podcast called Mac Power Users, and I hate to say that, but this scares me a little bit. But I think maybe with Evan's instructions, uh, I will mingle my way through it a little bit. 
Nice. Well, look, report back on the Mac Power Users Plus how how it works out for you. Yeah, because this is something I really want. I really want, um, you know, HomeKit and and Wemo and MyQ and all of these things working together. Which this this just makes me think. Um, you know, one of the big problems is that Wemo doesn't work with HomeKit, and they said they were going to bring HomeKit support, and then they realized how hard that was going to be, and they said, oh no, never mind. You know, the first generation Philips bulbs did not work with HomeKit and their solution to that was, well, we can make them work, but you have to update your bridge. It seems to me that either Apple or the device manufacturers like Belkin or others could add HomeKit support to these legacy devices by doing what Philips did and by creating a bridge. It's just so frustrating that all these people can't get in a room and just agree on a protocol. But, you know commerce gets in the way well i think now it's time to talk a little bit about stuff we're playing with how about you go first because i'm i'm curious about uh your product well you know what i um i have two can i have two you can have two it's the holidays all right because the, one of them is kind of timely the, the, uh, the first is this anchor usb c 60 watt power supply i wrote a post this week about how you should never buy power supplies from Amazon because, you know, reading the reports, so many of them are fraudulent. Uh, Anchor is a company that it sounds like they're paying me because they keep talking about them, but they're not. I guess we should talk to them about that someday. But I, I found their products reliable. And um, I had this issue with the um, with the new MacBook where I've got this big, you know, brick charger that it came with. And I generally charge it. My nightstand has got a little shelf where I put the iPad and the, the Mac in at night to charge and I but I didn't have a plug for it and I just wasn't happy with big power strips next to my bed. So I bought this thing from Anchor. It's a 60 watt power supply that's USB C, but it also has four um USB ports, standard USB ports, I guess USB A ports connected to it. So with this one thing I can I can charge the MacBook and I can also charge the the uh, Apple Watch and the iPad and the iPhone at night while I'm sleeping. And it's very minimal. I like it. They, they have a couple of them. They have a 40-watt one if you've got the standard MacBook, and they've got the 60-watt one if you've got the bigger MacBook Pro. Now, just FYI, the 15-inch MacBook Pro, I believe, takes 80-something watts of power. It still charges overnight, though. I mean, it's not going to charge as quickly, but it charges. It's just a really great kind of solution to, you know, to get a lot of the clutter out of your life. I think when I travel, I could do the same thing. Or I could just take this one device and I would be all set for charging, which is nice. So it's the USB-C 60-watt power supply from Anchor. Uh, there's the bit of hardware for the month, the bit of software for the month. Wait, wait, wait. I have, I have questions. Okay. I don't know if you have answers, but I'm going to ask you. So do I get the full 60 watts out of the USB-C power outlet or is the whole thing 60 watts? And then I have, I have other stuff plugged in. I get less. I have not measured it. I just know that when I plug my 15-inch MacBook Pro and go to bed and I wake up, it's got a full charge. Right, because I'm thinking this could be my road power adapter if I could get close to the full 60 watts, because about 60 watts would charge my MacBook Pro. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you're on the road, you need to charge quickly and you need to charge it close to full speeds. Yeah, I don't, it won't do that for, for my bigger one. But the uh, but it also has like the, the smart technology where it puts 2.4 amps into an iPad, you know, if the device will accept higher amperage, it'll give it to them for the, for the um, USB iOS devices. It's a nice little package. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm thinking now I might get another one and stick it to the bottom of my desk with the other gear down there. So I've got just power on top of my desk for different devices. 
Do you want my second one or do you want to go first? We'll come. Yes. No, give me your second one. Cause I've got a bunch of them. Okay. The, uh, the other one is we've talked about this touch bar and everybody, or a lot of people that got the new MacBook are enjoying the touch bar. Um, Daniel Jalcut had a, a product called touche that puts the touch bar on your iMac screen, which is kind of nice to see how it works, but isn't really all that helpful. Um, there is an app that is there and there's been a couple of these over the years, but this is one that I really kind of like. It's called Quadro, Q-U-A-D-R-O. It's an app for the iPad or, or iPhone. And if you put you put it on your iPad, then there's a companion app that goes on your Mac. It's sensitive to whether at whatever app is open on your Mac and it gives you additional buttons for that. Like if I open up OmniFocus, I can select between my perspectives and all these other things. And I just was curious about it because everybody's talking about touch bars. I thought, well, this is a way to kind of add a touch bar to an iMac. Let's see how I like it. And it's kind of nice. Uh, the way I use it is I've got, you know, my stump that I always talk about, my little stump stand. And I, I put the um, the iPad on that and it's just the right angle. So it leans against the iMac. And it's just at the base of the iMac and it's right above my fingers on the keyboard. And it adds some additional buttons. It's sensitive to whatever app you're in. It's well done. It's a, there's a free model and there's a premium model. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to pay for the premium model. But the um, it's kind of a fun experiment, if nothing else. If you've got an iPad sitting on your desk while you're working on your iMac, I recommend giving Quadro a try. Well, I have one, two, three. I have five picks. You had two. I get I get five. Oh, wait, wait a second. This is a whole show. <laughs> no, I, I will do these in rapid fire. Um, it's the holidays and I, I I feel a little bad. I did not buy one thing in a brick and mortar store this holiday season. Um, everything I bought this season, I think I'm done with my shopping now, has been online, which means I have had a lot of packages arriving um, at my door, at my office, at various places. And um, so my pick this this show is stuff to manage your holiday packages and deliveries. So I have two picks that are related to making sure that you get the best price on things, and then three picks that are related to managing your deliveries. Uh, for getting the best price on things, I recommend um, two services. Uh, one is called Camel Camel Camel, which I have no idea why, but it's a service that works particularly well with Amazon. And if there's a, an item that you're looking for that you think might go on sale, it will show you historical price trends on those items. It's a web service. Um, and you can also set it up to give you an email notification when something hits that specific price point. A similar service, but is an iOS app, uh, is an app called Price Tracker. So those are two things, especially if you do a lot of Amazon shopping that you want to keep an eye out for. Uh, the three quick apps that I want you to, and services that I want you to take a look at after you buy all of your stuff for managing your uh, packages uh, one we've talked about many times before is the deliveries apps. That's um, where if you sign up for it and you buy it, you can forward all of your delivery confirmation emails or your shipping emails to a special email address. They'll show up in the deliveries apps. And at a quick glance, you can see what's coming, when it's coming, how many days away it is. And then on top of that, this uh, last year, I subscribed to two services that help me specifically track packages from UPS and FedEx. Uh, they are free for the basic service. And so um, you can sign up for UPS My Choice or FedEx Delivery Manager. And what happens is anytime anybody sends you a package using either UPS or FedEx, FedEx or UPS will send you a notification. 
So many times you'll get a, a, a information from FedEx or email from FedEx or UPS before you get that package shipment notification uh, from the sender. And it will say, hey, you've got a package coming. Um, the package is set to arrive on this specific day. And it will even give you an estimated arrival time. And you do this by signing up your particular address. You usually have to go to their website, enter your address, and they'll send you a postcard to verify your address. And here's a hack. This is a great way that you can identify like iPhone and iPad deliveries because sometimes Apple delays that uh, tracking information. But UPS and FedEx will send you the tracking information as soon as it enters their system. So it's a good way to get a heads up on those packages uh, as soon as they start to arrive. Um, It's great because they'll send you, you can configure them to send you notifications like when a package arrives, when it's delivered. Uh, So if you don't regularly check your front door, you'll know those types of things. And then you can also configure special instructions, like do you want packages delivered to the back? Uh, Do you have a special gate code? Or you can also have them redirect packages, like to the local UPS store, the FedEx store, um, or things like that if you're not going to be home to sign for it. So, um, And then there are even more services if you if you pay for them. Nice. Now, are you on a first-name basis with your delivery guy? <laughs> he he sympathizes. I think he also has a little Amazon issue, too. Uh, he, he came to the office today with um, uh, three packages for me. And he says, Katie, I got more for you. I was like, thank you. <laughs> I think my uh, delivery guy thinks I'm like running an illegal business. You know, this weird guy answers the door all the time. Packages coming. There's four of us. So just imagine, right? Yeah. I I apologized to him. I said, I'm sorry. I did all of my shopping online this year. I didn't want him to think like these were all for me. And he said, no, 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 don't apologize. This is what keeps us in business. So I I think the, although I know this is a very busy time of year for them, I, I think they're overall kind of happy about it. All right, Katie Floyd, we got to the end of another Mac Power Users Feedback Show. Thank you, everybody, for sending in all the feedback. Uh, we appreciate all of the information you can share with us so we can get it back out into the community. Um. This is the last one of the year. So uh, it was a fun run of doing uh, feedback shows this year. I hope next year we continue this. Um, and uh, thank you to our sponsors, Casper, Omni Group, and MyNote. If you've got feedback for us, where should you send it, Katie Floyd? Well, you can do what our um, friends today did and send that to uh, send us an audio comment by recording it up, uh, preferably not on the back of a motorboat. But you can send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. The, uh, the built-in uh, recording app on the iPhone works great for that. You can also send regular email to us at uh, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com or we're on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd and David is at Max Sparky. The next show is going to be all about using the iPad as your second device. I've got a lot of work in this outline, and I think it's going to be a great show. So we'll see you then. 